If you've got your Bibles, would you open them with me to the book of Joshua? We're going to be in chapter 2, Joshua chapter 2. A few weeks ago, we were in Joshua chapter 1, and many of you were here for that message, and you remember we preached a message called, Be Strong and Courageous. And we looked at the encouragement in Joshua chapter 1, the encouragement of God to the leader, Joshua. Four times in a matter of 12 verses, God says to Joshua, either directly or through people, be strong and courageous. And so God communicates to the leader of Israel that he's preparing him to lead the people of God. They've been in the wilderness wandering for some 40 years. They were supposed to have crossed into the promised land 40 years ago under Moses' leadership. But they, they cowered in fear, and so they spent 40 years in the wilderness. All that generation passed away, and now Joshua is here, and God's encouraging him to lead the people, to arise, to go in, and to possess the land. That's what Joshua 1 was about. But I just want to stop right here and just reiterate something, and, and this is really the reason that God has brought me right back to the story of God's people, and I, and I believe we're going to camp out here for a few weeks. I believe God wants some of us, some of you specifically in your life and all of us, all of us collectively to get ready to cross over into something new that God wants to do. Amen. Let me explain what kind of church this is. See, sometimes the preacher awkwardly stops at the end of an emphatic statement. And that's where typically church folk would insert. Yeah, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. If you're not an amen person, you know, you could, you could try a different one. Like, how about like, come on. You don't try that one? Just say, come on. That one works for me. Yeah, that was weird for some of you. Okay, how, about, how about this one? Yeah, I, I like that one. I like that one. Uh, let's try that one. Just say, glory. glory. Amen. Amen. All right. I'm just giving you a little help here because I, I don't want you to be reaching for, you know, words in that, in that moment when it happens. It's going to happen again when it does. You know, you might, you might just want to jump in with a, what was that? <laughs> Hallelujah. I don't want to give you too many words. Y'all take up all my preaching time. But just work, work on a few of those. Listen, I, I, I genuinely believe this. God is getting ready to move us into a, a new dimension, a, a new a new territory. He wants us to gain ground on some things that we've never seen done before in our lives. And I believe that God wants to speak a word for us here at the beginning of this year as a church, that it's time to cross over. It's time to to cross over. And so as we study the next few chapters, here's my prayers. I've been reading ahead and man, you talk about some great content. If you love love good stories, you're going to love the book of Joshua. But as we study through this and as we break down what God's saying to the people of Israel, as they get ready to possess their promise, I believe God is going to cause our faith to reach out and grab a hold of some promises that have been in our distant future, things that maybe you learned about, heard about. Maybe like the children of Israel, you've kind of felt like you've been in a wilderness place. Maybe it's been 40 days or or 40 weeks or 40 months or maybe even 40 years, things that you just wondered if it would ever happen. But God wants to bring us, as he did them, into a new place, into a position of receiving some of the promises that God has spoken 
over our lives. But here's what I want you to understand, because some of you, you know the Bible and you're kind of familiar with the story. And so already you're kind of exempting yourself uh, from from this group because you're thinking like a lot of us do, that us crossing over is is a metaphor for our salvation, that that, you know, you're, you're broken and, and your life's a wreck and, and, and everything's falling apart and we need God to, to, to cross us over. And so you're here this morning and, and, and you're, you're doing good. Everything's okay in your life. You're, you're, you know, finances are okay. Marriage, doing good. Things are stable. The kids aren't going crazy. You know, so you go, I, I don't really need to, to cross over, uh, today. But hear me. Because a lot of times we miss this. The crossing over for the children of Israel to come out of the wilderness and into the promised land was not a crossing over into salvation. It was not a crossing over of deliverance for God to take them out of a terrible place and then move them into a place of security. Here's what we miss a lot of times about the desert years, the wilderness. Because when I say they were in the wilderness, right away we think of people that are that are aimlessly wandering and that are confused and and that just they're 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 running from God and they're not in God's will. But can I just tell you that the wilderness was a pretty good place for the children of Israel. I mean, think about it. It it wasn't all that bad of a place to be. They never had to wonder where God was leading them. I had just prayed in this altar for someone who was asking the question about the will of God for their life. Never happened to the generation in the wilderness. They got up every morning and they saw a big cloud of God's presence hovering in front of them. And when the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. And at night, there was a pillar of fire. And so they just had to follow the the visible presence of God. Wouldn't that be a lot easier to discern the will of God if you could just follow the visible presence of God everywhere you were supposed to go? They never had to plant seed or harvest crops. Every day, God just supernaturally provided manna from heaven for them. And if they ever ran out of water, they would just say something to Moses. He'd hit a rock with a stick and water would come flowing out. I mean, it was a good place to be. That was an opportunity right there. <laughs> Trying to help you. Imagine this. They never had to replace their clothing. Their clothes never worn out. Now, and I know for some of you shopaholics, that would be a curse because that would take your excuse away. Like, I need new shoes. They didn't need new shoes, ever. God just supernaturally supplied and provided and sustained their lives. The wilderness is pretty good living. I mean, you're with God. He's taking care of you. He's meeting your needs. So hear this. The crossing over is not God rescuing you out of a dark place and bringing you into a good place. The crossing over is moving from good to God's best. And that was better. Y'all did good on that one. The crossing over. There's some things. Listen, sometimes the enemy of God's best for your life is good. It's not, it's not that you're doing anything that's necessarily wrong or, or evil or that you've gone astray. It's just that you haven't tapped into the fullness of what God wants for us. And, and I believe that's true of, of a lot of churches even. that They're doing good. It's fine. We're, we're sustaining. But we aren't really seeing the, the miracle signs, wonders. We're not seeing the, the outpouring of the latter rain. We're not seeing the things that we read about and in our hearts hope for. And I believe God wants to move you from what is good to what is God's best. Amen. 
The Bible says this. We know what the devil's plan is. John 10, 10. In fact, we'll throw this up on the screen here. The Bible says in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy. That's his plan. He wants to take you out. But God also says, Jesus says rather, here's my plan. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's what God wants for you. The enemy wants to destroy your life. God wants you to live life to the absolute full, an abundant life, an overflowing life. But let's be honest, usually we pick somewhere in the middle. Right? I mean, we we certainly don't want, we don't want the enemy's plan for our life. But good is good. But God wants us to cross over. So chapter 2 in this story. Chapter 1 was all about God preparing the leader. Chapter 3 we'll get to is all about God preparing the nation. But chapter 2 is actually about God preparing for himself. I'll explain to you later what I mean by that. But in the first part of chapter 2, we meet a lady whose name is Rahab. And her occupation is mentioned with her name in most places of Scripture. Rahab, the prostitute. So let's get to know her a little bit. Look at verse 1 with me, Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, that's the Acacia, go and look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, And stayed there. Now, that's a weird verse. I mean, he says, all right, here's the plan. I want you to go and I want you to spy out the land. And they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Now, if you don't know anything about the Bible, you read that. And at first glance, it looks like they have they have been sidelined from the mission really quick. I mean, they had they were supposed to be doing one thing and they got inside the doors of this uh, this promiscuous, idolatrous, pagan, fortified city. And all of a sudden it was like their first time on the Vegas Strip. <laughs> like, what? What? But actually, they were being strategic. You see, Rahab, the Bible tells us, lived in her house, was built in the wall of the city. And so her window looked outside the city, which would make a great escape route if you had to get out quickly. Secondly, I think this was strategic that they went to the house of the prostitute because it was not uncommon to see foreigners who have come from a long journey to enter into this town and their first stop is to go to the house of the prostitute. And so they decided we're just going to sneak right in and we're just going to go right over there and we're going to talk to we're going to talk to her and we're going to get some information. But apparently they weren't as stealthy as they thought they were because the Bible says in the next couple of verses that someone saw them coming into the city and they went and they told the king that they were there and so the king sent messengers to Rahab's house. So here she is and all of a sudden there's a knock on her door, and the messengers from the king demand, hey, there are spies from Israel who have come to spy out the land, and we know they're in your house. Bring them out to us. But the Bible says that Rahab had already hidden the spies. And so she tells the messengers of the king, she says, she says well, yeah, there were two men here. They came to my house. That's not uncommon in my profession. But how was I to know that they were spies? 
In fact, they, they left just before the city gate was closed for the night. But I bet if you hurry up, you might be able to catch them. And so she sends the spies out of the city gate and they go down to the fords of the Jordan to try and find these two spies of Israel. This is an incredible story as as we begin to look into what happens here. I want you to read with me. We'll pick it up in verse 8, reading down to verse 15. Just, Just look at the word with me. It says this, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and she said to them, I know. Now, if you like to underline stuff in your Bible, I'd underline those two words right there. I know that the Lord has given you this land. And that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all the people who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Look at verse 10. She says, we have heard. I underlined that too. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. Verse 11, she says again, When we heard about it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth Below, I'm going to say that last part again because this is a confession of faith. This is Rahab. This is a a harlot from Jericho, a pagan city in Canaan. And here she is telling the spies of Israel. She says, for the Lord, your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Can I just tell you this morning that God can use Anybody he wants to and anything he wants to to accomplish his will. I mean, listen, you don't have to listen to me preach for too many weeks to pick up on a recurring theme. I love to talk about the potential in a heart that is fully yielded to the will of God. I love to talk about the ability that God can tap into when we make ourselves available for him to be used. If you if you're sitting here today and you doubt God's ability to use you, if you ever needed an inspiration or a motivation for God to use you, Rahab is your girl. Because here she was. A prostitute in Jericho, a city that, by the way, God had already Put judgment on. He's already told Joshua he's going to give him favor and he's going to destroy Jericho. Because it's wicked. The judgment of God is coming. And here she is setting up shop in a wicked town. And yet God is about to use her to rescue the spies. Maybe you've heard the statement before. That God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. That's what he does with Rahab. I mean, I thank God for the Joshua types. I mean, you know, the Joshua types. Uh, God can use them. And the truth is, we all expect God to use them. I mean, Joshua, he, he, he knew the Lord from the time he was a young child. 
during the Passover. He experienced the power of God, the the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and and the manna from heaven and the water from the rock and, and God helping them to rout their enemies. I mean, all that stuff. Joshua experienced the presence of God. He went into the tent of meeting with Moses and and he saw the manifest presence of God. He was the commander of all the Israeli forces. I mean, you see a guy like that and you go, well, yeah, I mean, he's obviously going to be next in line to be the leader of Israel. But God uses the Joshua types and, and we praise God for that. But not all of you are the Joshua types. That didn't sound right. Let me say it better. Not all of us are the Joshua types. Right? I mean, let's, let's be honest. Some of you, you didn't grow up cutting your teeth on the church pew. You didn't learn how to walk in the nursery. Some of you, your story doesn't look like Joshua's story. But praise God that he can use the Rahab types as well. That he can use the Rahabs. And, and if, if you're the Rahab type, chapter 2 is for you. Chapter 1 was for the Joshuas. Chapter 2 is for you because Rahab was sin personified. I mean, if you wanted to think of what it looks like to be lost, what it looks like to be hellbound, this is the picture that we get in Scripture. Now, I don't feel the need this morning to expound uh, on her profession. But let me just let me just say this to you. That she... Uh, she was not the Joshua type. In fact, some theologians, some theologians actually believe that one of the reasons that God was going to bring judgment on Jericho, not just take over the city, but completely destroy it, annihilate it, burn it to the ground. One of the reasons that theologians believe he was going to do that is because of their immorality was so rampant that the community in Jericho was infested with sexually transmitted diseases. That it, was, that it was just so contaminated as a people that God had to utterly wipe them out. And let me just tell you, if, if there's a community that is, has a pandemic of STDs, you can be sure the prostitute has it. And so this is Rahab. And God chooses to use her. And the more I look at her story, the more I realize... We're all the Rahab type. We're all the, the Rahab type. Every last one of us. We don't, we don't come in with pedigree. We don't come in with, uh, with anything that we can, uh, we can use to leverage the favor or the goodness of God in our life. I mean, here, here's what we often forget. You know, Rahab was a prostitute, yes. But she didn't start out that way. Have you ever thought about Rahab, the little girl running in the streets, innocently in Jericho. Have you ever thought about the dreams and the aspirations that she had? Do you think in kindergarten she set out to say, I want to be a harlot? No, I don't think so. I think she had bigger plans than that. I think she had bigger dreams than that. You know, one of the core convictions and the mission of this church is that we will lead people from where they are to where God wants them to be. For us to be able to do that, we have to be able to look at lost and sinful and addicted and broken people and realize they didn't start out that way. In fact, they were created in the image of God. They were formed with purpose that God saw intrinsic value in who they are. And as much as he loved you, he loves them and he sent his son for them. They didn't start out that way. Yes, Rahab 
was a prostitute. But God had a plan for her life. Rahab brought something to the table. And when I thought about what she brought to the table, I realized that the two things she brought to the table are the same two things that you and I bring to the table. Two things. The first, failure. That's what she brought. She was a failure. In, in, in any spiritual sense, in any even career or professional sense, I mean, she was the, the bottom rung of society. You would look at her and you would say, she's a failure. You know what the Bible says in Romans 3.23? Many of you do. You could quote it. It says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means we all brought the same, the same thing when we came to God. Failure. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. In fact, David said this. Look at this verse with me on the screen. In Psalm 130, verse 3, he said to the Lord, he said, If you, Lord, kept a record of our sins, Lord... Who could stand? You know the answer to that question. None of us. If God kept a record of our sins, and we know that sin cannot enter His very presence because of His holiness, none of us could stand if God kept the record of our sins. But praise God, this week we saw a beautiful testimony of what God has done with our sins. Because Isaiah said, Though my sins be as scarlet, you will wash them and make them whiter than snow. He just, like a blanket, like a 30-inch thick blanket, he just covers. Amen? Man, I, I got more revelation of God's grace this last week than I wanted. How about you? We got snow on top of snow on top of snow, and that's the way the grace of God blankets us. It just covers us. And what used to be a, a, a dead, lifeless yard is now just beautiful white snow. That's what the Bible says God does with our sins. What's funny is Rahab is always mentioned as the prostitute. Even in the New Testament, and this is kind of odd, in Hebrews chapter 11, it's the Faith Hall of Fame. It's the place where, you know, people like Abraham and and Moses are are mentioned and people that did great exploits for God. Right there in Hebrews 11, we find Rahab. The, The weird thing about it to me is that it doesn't just say, and Rahab, it says Rahab the prostitute, trusted in God. And I have to kind of laugh at that and because I think, well, why, why in the world would they still call her the prostitute, you know, in the book of Hebrews? I mean, give a girl a break. I mean, she's turned a corner, you know. And, and I thought, you know, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. We try to pin the sins of people's past to their chest like a scarlet letter. And when God's trying to do a work in somebody, he's trying to pull them up. All we can see is Rahab the harlot. But aren't you glad that God doesn't identify you by the sins of yesterday? Aren't you glad that God's forgiven you and that your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus? Amen? Amen. Somebody ought to shout glory. (laughs) God is faithful. He doesn't identify us by our sins anymore. That's why Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount like this. When he was teaching what the kingdom of God is like and what it looks like to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. Here's his words. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
You know what it means to be poor in spirit? It it means to realize that I, I come like Rahab with my failures. I don't come saying, God, you know, I supported uh, the Red Cross. God, you know, I, I, you know, I, I attended Sunday school as a child. You, God, you know, I, I've, I've been good to my spouse. There, there's nothing that we bring to the table as a negotiating chip, a bargaining chip for the salvation. When we come, we come poor. We come impoverished. We come with the reality that we know we're failures. And that's what we bring to the table. And so Jesus says, you're blessed when you realize you're poor in spirit. When you realize you're poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven will be yours. So Rahab brought failure. The second thing she brought that we bring is faith. She brought faith, and we looked at it in the text there in verse 9. She said, I know. Do you see that? She said, I know that the Lord has given you this land. How did she know? how, How did this prostitute from the other side of an impenetrable wall know that God had given them this land? Well, it's down in verse 11. It says, she told them in verse 10, she said, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. In verse 11, she says, we've heard of it and our hearts melted in fear for everyone's courage failed because of you. She had some insight. We don't know how much she knew, but she had enough knowledge about who God was, about what God had done, about what God planned to do, that she said our hearts melted in fear. Can I just tell you, that that's what a brush with death will do for you. If you've ever had a close encounter like that, you know, or maybe, you know, you just missed a head-on collision in an intersection, what'd you start doing? You, you hadn't prayed all week and all of a sudden, whew, thank you, Jesus. God, whew, but, you know, you, you just break out into a worship service right there because you realize in that moment that while we're just distracted with all the cares of life, that we're not even thinking about what's most important. Or maybe it's a a diagnosis from the doctor. And all of a sudden, what you thought was going to be the next 20 years might be more like the next 20 months. And you start thinking about life differently. You start examining things differently. That's what happened with Rahab. She had a, a brush with death moment. She had a reality where she realized these spies are coming in. The army's gathering on the other side of the Jordan. I don't know how they're getting over here, but I'm sure they are getting over here. And when they do, they're going to do the same thing to us that they did to the Ammonites on the other side. And so she exercises faith. The Bible says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's good to fear the Lord. You know, some parents say that to the kids as if they're like, I'm going to put the fear of God in you. You know, maybe ill-spoken, but it's a good thing that we fear the Lord. It's a good thing that we, in fact, the Bible says that's where wisdom begins. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You know, that's why Ecclesiastes tells us that it's better to go to a wake than a birthday party. You say, where's that verse? It's better to go to awake. L- look at it with me. Ecclesiastes, it's on the screen. Chapter 7, verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Now, what in the world does he mean by that? It's better to go to a house 
of mourning. Well, let me tell you what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean it's easier. It's certainly not easier to go to a house of mourning than it is to go to a house of feasting, but it's better. And the reason he says it's better is because it's there at the house of mourning that we learn what Psalm 90 said, to number our days. You know, we can just kind of go through life, planning for the weekend and whatever. But when we come to a house of mourning, when we look down into the casket of a loved one, when we look at our own mortality, suddenly life becomes more serious. We have that moment that Rahab had and we have to make a decision. And that's why Ecclesiastes says, you know what? It's better for you to go to a house of mourning than to just go and indulge yourself in another feast because that reality is going to sober your judgment to eternity. It's going to wake you up to the reality that no man's guaranteed tomorrow. That we must choose the Lord while we have today. That's why Jesus after he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. He followed that statement with this in Matthew 5, 4. He said, blessed are those who mourn. He didn't mean people that were sad about their finances or relationships or their health or the stock market. He said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. The people he was talking about mourning are those that mourn their own sin. This is where repentance begins. When, you know, what repentance just means to, to turn, to turn away from our sin. And it begins when we confess, the Bible says, confessing our sins to God. So when we mourn our own sins, confession is just saying the same thing that God says about it. God already knows it's sin. God calls it sin. But the real moment of faith, the real turning point is when we call it what God calls it. And we realize it's sin. And we realize it's going to keep us out of heaven. And we don't want it in our life anymore. And so we confess to God. And we begin to see how, how much of a failure we really are without God. We don't try to come asking God to accept us on our merit. We come like Rahab and realize I bring nothing to the table. And so I'm poor in spirit and I am grieving over the life that I have lived. And I mourn that. Here's what he says. You'll be comforted. You'll be comforted. Rahab said this in verse 11. She said, our hearts melted. She was grieved. All of her pompous attitude, all of her self-absorption, all of her selfishness, destroying other people's lives and marriages for her own financial gain, her heart melted. Something changed on the inside of her. I want you to look with me at verse 15. We're going to read through verse 21. I, I just can't tell this better than it's written. So I want to read it to you. Starting in verse 15. So she let them down by a rope through the window. For the house that she lived in was part of the city wall. So she said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there for three days until they return. And then go on your way. Now the men who had, the men had said to her, this oath that you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. 
And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go inside your house, go outside of your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But, he says in verse 20, if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them on their way and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So Rahab has come in faith. And she knows that God is going to give Jericho to the Israelites. And she says, listen, I protected you. I'm asking you to protect me. I'm asking you to protect me and my family. And so they gave her these conditions. They said, if you'll, if you'll keep your family in your house and you'll tie this scarlet rope outside of your window, then, then we'll keep our word. Our lives for your life. You protected us, we'll protect you. I want you to, I want you to just think for a moment about the world's longest rope. You get a picture of it right here. I want you to know that what we're looking at in Joshua chapter 2, this, this picture in your mind of a scarlet cord hanging down out of Rahab's window, this is not just a, a, a cord hanging from her window. This is a cord, that we've zoomed way in. This is a microscopic snapshot picture of a cord that has been strung throughout all of history. I'm talking about the cord of the blood of Jesus. That's what this represents. The cord that hung outside of her window is the blood of Jesus. Th- think about the promise. Here's, here's what they said. They said, hang this cord outside of your window. And you and all your family get in the house behind the cord. And when we come, when judgment comes, when God comes to punish sin with wrath, you'll be protected if you stay in the house behind the cord. Think, think about this way back. From the very beginning of human history when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they had sinned against God and they were about to be banished outside of Eden. What did God do? The Bible says that God made skins from animals for them. He clothed them. He gave them better garments. You know, to make those garments of skins, there had to be an animal sacrifice. And so right in the very first chapters of Genesis, God began to weave a cord of blood, a cord of salvation for his people that communicated as he clothed them that we would be robed with God's righteousness. And then they had two sons, Cain and Abel. You remember their story? How they both just instinctively, they knew that God deserves our worship. So the Bible says Cain came and he brought some of the fruits from his field. But Abel, he knew that God required blood sacrifice. And so he brought a lamb. And the Bible says that Cain's sacrifice wasn't accepted. But Abel's was. And judgment fell on that day. Because God already had a requirement in mind for blood to be brought. And then of course the story in Exodus 12. The Passover. Rahab's story maybe illustrates the Passover better than any other. 
Because God was getting ready to judge Egypt. And he gave Moses commands in Exodus 12. He said, tell all the people to get a lamb. Get a Passover lamb. We want you to sacrifice the lamb. Take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost of your house. And so when the death angel comes through Egypt, he's going to strike down the firstborn of every living person and every animal. And only those who have their family in the house, behind the door, covered with the blood, will be saved. They'll be passed over. And then the tabernacle and the temple. And God institutes worship and thousands upon thousands of of cattle and oxen and dove were brought before the priest and they were sacrificed on the altar and their blood spilled out for one reason. God was weaving a cord of redemption all throughout the narrative of Scripture. He was weaving a cord of redemption to say that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so God communicates the story all through the Word of God. And then finally, we come to Jesus. In the New Testament, we come to our Lord, the the perfect sacrifice who died on the cross and, and He fulfilled the promise. His blood that flowed was the substance of every shadow in the Old Testament. Everything that pointed towards the rope of redemption, it pointed towards Jesus. Think about this for a minute. Rahab's supposed to take the cord and tie it to the window in the wall. She's supposed to tie it to the window in the wall and get her family behind the cord. I think it's pretty cool that the very thing that was designed to keep them out, the walls, was the very thing that God said, I want you to put the promise in. I want you to put the promise in the very thing. See, that's exactly what they did with Jesus. They took Jesus, the promise of God, the cord of salvation, and they buried him in a tomb. The very thing that was intended to keep us out of the presence of God. And they said, put the promise in the tomb. And if you'll trust and you'll believe in him, salvation will come. The Bible says this, that that cord goes even beyond Eden. The Bible says in Revelation that from the foundation of the world, he was slain. From the foundation of the world, Jesus was slain. This scarlet cord of salvation, it passed through Rahab's house. But the truth is it hangs from heaven's window. It's God's plan that we would be saved. And it's the world's longest rope because it still extends today. It still reaches to wherever you're at. There's no one. There's no one that is so far gone that God's rope just, it can't get to him. It can't reach to him. The Bible says that grace is greater than sin. Listen, hear hear me today. If you feel like you're at the end of your rope, it's time to reach for a longer rope. God's grace is sufficient. See, David understood that because he knew what it was to be at the end of life's rope. In fact, David said this in Psalm 103. He said, he redeems your life from the pit. He knew a thing or two about getting stuck in a pit. uh, David, rather, was, was loving God, serving God in in a position of authority when all of a sudden he fell into a trap of lust for another man's wife. And then 
he committed adultery with that woman. And then he tried to cover up his sin, but the the snowball just rolled too fast and things began to come uh, undone at the seams when he found out that she was pregnant and he couldn't cover up the story. And so then he became a murderer and he killed her wife thinking that now he had committed the, the, the last sin and that he could continue to cover it up. Judgment came and, and the child died. And when he finally got to the place where he wanted to, to, to get out from under the weight of his guilt, he didn't know what to do. He was literally at the end of his rope. But he did something that, that we should all remember. And he wrote this down for us in Psalm chapter 40. Look at this. Here's what David said. Psalm 40 in verse 1 and 2. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me. And he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit. Out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. Can I just announce to you today. That the blood of Jesus. The the rope of redemption. That reaches down and grabs David. The adulterer. David the murderer. That reaches down and extends salvation to Rahab. The prostitute. It can still reach you. It can still reach those that we would look at and we would just immediately uh, cast judgment on. Those that we would look at and say that there's no, there's no way. There's no way. But God's cord of redemption can reach them. Now, as we end this this morning, I, I told you at the beginning that, that chapter 2 was really about God not preparing Joseph and not preparing the people, but really preparing for himself. And I just want to explain to you what I mean by that. See, the Bible says in Joshua chapter 6, and, and this is kind of a spoiler if you don't know the story, but in Joshua chapter 6 is when the, the, the actual battle ensues. And God's given a, a plan to Joshua, and it's very unconventional, but he says to tell the people to march around the walls of Jericho once a day for six days, and on the seventh day, march around the walls seven times. And at the end of the seventh time, you're going to have the priest blast the trumpets, and the people are going to lift up a shout, and all the walls are going to come crumbling down, and you're going to go in and you're going to take the city. And that was God's plan. And so on the seventh day, after the seventh time around, the priest blasts the trumpets, All the people shout, and just like God said, the walls of that city, that impenetrable fortress, just began to crumble to the ground. Every bit of the walls, except one little part. One little odd-shaped part of the wall stood there with a window and a scarlet cord waving in the wind. And here's here's what the Word of God says. In Joshua chapter 6, you can look there with me. In verse 22, it says, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went and brought Rahab out. Her father, her mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her, they brought out her entire family and they put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. They put them in a place outside the camp. 
of Israel. But her story's not over. She didn't just avoid disaster. And this is why I love her story so much because God can use anyone he wants to use. The sky is the limit with a heart that is yielded completely to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The Bible says very clearly that Joshua put her in a place outside the camp. And when he addressed her, he said, go and get the prostitute. This is an unclean woman and an unclean family, but she rescued us, so we'll keep her outside the camp. But just a few verses later, it tells us that years later, as this story was recorded, the Bible says that Rahab didn't stay outside the camp forever. See, she demonstrated faith in God. She demonstrated faith that brought salvation. But salvation doesn't mean instantaneous sanctification. In other words, just because you give your life to Jesus doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you don't still have issues and problems to work through. And so Joshua, they saved her. She was saved, but she was outside the camp. But she didn't stay there. She was a changed woman. She had pleaded for mercy. She surrendered her life to God. And years later, in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 25, at the latter part, it says this. It says, and she, Rahab, lived among the Israelites to this day. So at the end of the book of Joshua, when they're accounting the tale, they say, you know, she still lives here in this town. Yeah, she started outside the camp. She started as a prostitute from Jericho. But to this day, you know what? She lives with us. She's right here among us. She's a part of the family of God. God began to rewrite her whole story. He changed the whole outcome after he changed her heart. He changed her lifestyle. And you know what's awesome about Rahab? He changed her whole countenance. When people looked at her before, They they saw a prostitute. They saw someone that was used and unclean and unfit. But the Bible says this in Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 30. It says, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Something happened in Rahab's life when she gave her heart to God, when she began to become a part of the family of God. The, whole, the Holy Spirit didn't just save her, began to sanctify her and change her. She, she started to look attractive. There was something that was to be praised because this was a woman who feared the Lord. And you know what happened? She caught the eye of the praise and worship leader in all of Israel. That's right. See, the Bible says there was a man named Salmon whose father was the head of the tribe of Judah. Judah, you know what Judah means? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And there was something about this woman Rahab. You know, the Bible says, Jesus said, the one who is forgiven much loves much. There was something about her. It was just her positive attitude. It was the way that she was so full of worship and gratitude for what God had done. He had saved her. That, that Salmon took notice of Rahab. She caught his eye. And he asked her to marry him. And they gave birth to a son. And if you want to know the rest of her story, you have to jump all the way over to Matthew 
chapter 1. Because Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And here's what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 4. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, who was the commander of the tribe of Judah, was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab gave birth to Boaz. Well, who's Boaz? Boaz was the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. Ruth, it goes on to say, gave birth to Obed. Obed had a son named Jesse. Jesse had a son named David who became the king of Israel. And Jesus himself, the lion of the tribe of Judah, sits on the throne of David today. Tell me God doesn't know how to use somebody's story that is jacked up and messed up, but a heart that brings failure and faith to God. Nothing is impossible. Amen? Amen. Praise God. God made a prostitute the progenitor of the Savior. Think about that. That's a comeback story if I ever heard one. I just want you to imagine this morning what God can do. With a heart that's fully surrendered to him. And I'm not just talking about people that are are far from God. that, That don't know God. I'm talking about people that have been wandering in the wilderness of good. But to fully release. Faith in the direction of God. To fully yield all that you have and all that you are. To see what God will do. Nothing is impossible. Don't let yourself or Satan or anybody else mark you and identify you and pin an identification on you based on your sins of your past. Rip it off in Jesus' name. Because this Rahab is not Rahab the prostitute anymore. She is a mother in the lineage of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what God wants to do with broken stories and broken people. (laughs) He wants to do something incredible and and miraculous. And it starts with just simply yielding our lives to Him. 